Are any of you out there fans of museum exhibits? Anybody? Come on, I know I'm not. Okay, good. Well, beginning on March 11th of last year and running all the way through September of this year, the National Archives in Washington, D.C. is putting on a brand new exhibition, and it's called Amending America. Oh, Bill's nodding his head. Okay, Amending America. And it features more than 50 original documents from the archives that highlight the story of how we have amended or, let's say, attempted to amend the Constitution in order to form, in its words, a more perfect union. And the exhibit actually includes a list of over 11,000 attempts at changing our Constitution. 11,000. And it's printed out on this huge 225-foot-long banner that stretches all the way from the Bill of Rights encasement all the way across the rotunda to the other side. Okay, proving that it's difficult, if not impossible, to turn an idea into an amendment. All right? And the reason for that is because our founders set such a high bar for changing the framework of our imperfect but our incredible, nonetheless, democracy. So high that we've only done it 27 times in our country's history, despite those 11,000 attempts. Right? Pretty amazing, right? But you know, there have been a lot of attempts at modifying God's word and his law for his people over the years too, haven't there? Even in the early years of the church, so much so that the Apostle Paul felt that he needed to put pen to paper and write to the people of God about it. And so he wrote his epistle to the Romans, a letter which has been called the Constitution of Christianity, or our Christian Manifesto. And just like our U.S. Constitution lays out the framework of our human government, Paul's manifesto is his way of establishing that there is one kingdom and one king who is destined to rule this world and the world to come forever. And that that particular ruler is Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, our Savior of the world, a Savior that has come to overcome the powers of darkness and set us free from our bondage to sin. Amen. And Paul wanted the Romans not only, and us too, not only to know what Christ has done in a kind of universal way, but what he's done in and for us personally as citizens of that kingdom. Because just like today, when people don't know their constitutional rights or forget what it says and ignore its provisions and its promises, then we're all destined to become enslaved again, aren't we? And just to kind of give you a sense of the importance of this text that we're going to be looking at, the editors of the New Geneva Study Bible described the book of Romans like this, and I really thought this was impactful. They said, the book of Romans is Paul's fullest, grandest, and most comprehensive statement of the gospel. And they said, its compressed declarations of vast truths are like coiled springs, which once loosed leap through the mind and heart, to fill one's horizons and shape one's life. That's quite a description, isn't it, of this book of Romans. John Chrysostom, the 5th century's greatest preacher, had someone read to him the book of Romans aloud once a week, every single week. St. Augustine, Martin Luther, Charles Wesley, three defining figures in our Christian heritage all came to faith through the impact of the book of Romans. In fact, Martin Luther said, It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize Romans word for word. Who's done that? Okay. Me neither, so. 
but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were daily bread for the soul. And he added that it is impossible to either read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. So with those recommendations, we're going to take a look at our lectionary reading today that comes to us from the book of Romans chapter 8. These are the words of the living and true God. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Life and peace. And I don't know about you, but I think we could all use some life and peace about now, couldn't we? Because, you know, that idea of condemnation that our text started out with seems to be all around us. I mean, it's almost like it's in the air. Every day in our law courts across the country, verdicts are reached, sentences are given, the guilty are punished. Turn on television and politicians shout and blame each other and denounce each other, sometimes inside their own party affiliations. Television programs, whether they're fiction or reality TV, are full of stories of condemnation. And then you get a little bit closer to home, and there's those criticisms of each other that show up in our personal relationships, whether it's from friends or even sometimes from family members. And then, of course, even more personal is that self-condemnation. You know that kind that many of us face, like me in particular, if you step in front of a mirror or onto a scale, Right? Or maybe if you think about your past, those things that you can't change. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, that's the reason why many people don't bother going to church because to them it's just one more place to experience more condemnation. Have you ever heard people say that? And so to those folks, I would say, you know, if you, if you think that God has a reason to condemn you, the truth is you're absolutely right. That's the bad news. But praise God, and you know what, I have, I have the best job in the world because it's my job to share with you the really good news of Romans chapter 8, which reads, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. And you know, we could spend all afternoon looking into this passage because there's so much packed into it, and, and I won't do that to you, but we do need to take a really careful look at it and to study it, just like you would study any document. Any important document, right? Documents like the Constitution or the Bill of Rights that I mentioned, or in this case, our Book of Romans, if we're going to call it our Christian Constitution. And you know, anytime you go to study a document, you can't just speed read over it and think that you've got a good grasp on it. It won't work. That's the reason that attorneys make so much money, isn't it? They don't do that. Because you see, the average person, if they do read through Law codes, they just skim over them. But that's not what attorneys do, is it? They read slowly. 
they read carefully, because in most cases there's so much language in any given ordinance that unless you really read every word and consider every punctuation mark, you don't really know what it means. And that's the case with this verse we just read, because, and you can really easily miss this, just as you start reading it, the Apostle Paul throws in that word, therefore. And of course, anytime you see the word therefore in a sentence, it's a good idea to know what that word is there for, right? <laughs> and it's actually used quite a bit in the Bible, along with another really popular adverb, and that's the word but. That's one that we use a little more often, isn't it? As in, like, when you hear someone say, I don't mean to be rude, but. And then they proceed to be rude anyway. <laughs> or, or I don't mean to interrupt you, but then they go ahead and interrupt you. But, you know, there are a lot of folks in the first century, and, and I'm sure a whole lot in the world today, whose whole faith could very easily be summed up by that little word, but. Do you remember, like, in the Gospel of Luke, where we read, some men said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But let me first go home and bury my father. Another one said, I'll follow you, Lord. But I have to go home and say goodbye to my family. Remember the five foolish virgins that wanted to go to a wedding to meet the bridegroom, but their lamps ran out of oil. So you get the idea, right? All these people who's Spiritual lives could be summed up by that little word, but. But then we get to Paul's word for us today, and he says, therefore. Therefore. You remember the words of the Great Commission? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Help me out. Therefore, right? All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 6, 24 says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Therefore, I say to you, take no thought for your life. What you shall eat or what you shall drink. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand firm. You see, aren't those therefores better than all those buts? And those are all great examples of therefore in the Bible, but we still haven't answered the question of why Paul said it in today's reading. And the text that really pulls it all together, that really ties all of these thoughts together, comes from a part of the Old Testament Torah reading assigned for today. And it pulls in our theme for this year, which is seeing Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. That scarlet thread that runs from the first page of Genesis to the last amen in Revelation. And you know it pulls that theme together, continuing our series to compare the New Testament lectionary readings with the Old Testament. And the Torah portion that's assigned for this week leaves behind the book of Exodus that we have been reading and launches into a new book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. It's a book that's been described both as the physical and spiritual center of the five books of Moses. And it encompasses this huge portion of God's regulations for worship and for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Old Testament scholars count 246 of the 613 commandments of the Jews in this book. That's over 40% of all the regulations having to do with ritual purity and personal holiness that are based on this book. That's pretty important stuff, right? But you know, the truth is, 
if we're honest, lots of Christian readers have a tendency to skip through Leviticus, right? Because most of it is about as page-turning as the federal tax code. Right? That's how people view Leviticus, with all of its detailed descriptions of the various dietary rules and the rituals of the tabernacle and the regulations for what made someone clean or unclean. And I'll, I'll admit, I can see how that could be tedious when you're reading through it, or maybe it wouldn't seem very relevant to modern-day Christians, but you know that's unfortunate because just like reading through the details of our country's founding documents help us to understand the world we live in now, reading the pages of Leviticus lays the groundwork for the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and without the underlying concepts planted here in Leviticus, a lot of the fundamental doctrines of the New Testament, and particularly this book of Romans that we're looking at, don't make a whole lot of sense. So with that background in mind, this is our Old Testament reading today from the book of Leviticus, chapter 17. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, The Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. The priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood, because the life of every creature is its blood. And you see, in the Old Testament, people couldn't approach God's presence without blood. Blood that they had to continually get from pure lambs in a, a ritual that they reenacted morning and evening continuously. But you know, it wasn't just for the sake of the offering itself. Because the Lord intended that the sacrificial laws given to the Levitical priests would foreshadow the coming atoning sacrifice offered by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that wasn't just any sacrifice either. Because the Bible says it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. Amen. And the Levitical system served, in this case, as a, a type or as a picture of those heavenly realities. Just like we talked about a couple weeks ago, remember how Moses, after he had received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, was then given the, the blueprints and the pattern for the tabernacle. That's scale model of God's throne room in heaven. But you know, even at its very best, even with all of those costly materials, it was only a copy. It was just a shadow of the spiritual reality behind it and was never meant to be a permanent end in itself. Because it was the sacrificial death of Jesus that was the focal point and the goal of all of it. With Jesus himself as the form and the substance of all of those sacrifices and everything that they represented. And now, in the age that we're living in, with the fulfillment of that salvation by Christ's death and resurrection, and with the destruction of the temple that Jesus himself foretold, that ritual system and that priesthood of those Levites are no longer needed. We don't have to have those to get to God. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 says, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, 
which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins that they had committed under that first covenant. Do you see how that pulls all these things together? And so, so forever now, Jesus is that great high priest, the one who's entered the heavenly temple, the one made without hands and presented his own blood before the throne of God on our behalf. And you know, it's from there that he intercedes for us personally. right? You don't, you don't need the, the rituals of sacrifice or the rites of the confessional to draw near to God because Christ in compassion is drawing near to us. He's our advocate. He's the one who comes alongside us. He's the one who stands by us in the heavenly courtroom making an appeal for mercy on our behalf. An appeal for mercy with the Father who loves him and who always answers his prayers. That's why I can tell you on good authority, therefore there is now no condemnation for any of us who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who sends the the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and our our minds with that life and peace. You see, that's the hope. That's the promise. That's the gift of Jesus Christ. And looking to him and not to the church. Not to the Old Testament ordinances. Not to our good works. Not to the keeping of the law or the obeying of the commandments. But our simple trust in him. And today, if our Lord Jesus is calling out to you, if he's reaching out to your heart, the Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Turn to the Lord and he will have mercy and to our God, for he will freely pardon, but don't wait. You know, if you missed that exhibit at the National Archives that I talked about, it's no big deal. It's not the, the end of the world. I'm sure it's, it's probably preserved, maybe indefinitely, in storage there and, and on the Internet. You can access it any time you want almost. But that's not the case with God's offer of salvation. It's his free gift to give on his terms and not ours. So if Jesus Christ is drawing you to himself today, I ask you in his name to repent and believe the gospel. Right now. Right where you are. And the Holy Spirit doesn't need you to walk down the aisle or raise your hand or come to the altar because it's only a picture of the heavenly reality because, brothers and sisters, there is only one altar and that is the cross of Calvary. And so I'm not going to ask you to do anything. But as we come to the table, my prayer is that God would do something in and for you. And grant to any that haven't received it a miraculous, life-changing, supernatural transformation, one that doesn't just come and try to amend you and preserve you and put you on display, but one that's going to make you a radically new creation in Jesus Christ, leaving behind the condemnation and giving you a new life of peace. Amen? Will you pray with me?
God, our Father, it, it is right always and everywhere to give you our thanks and our praise, especially, Father, as we come to commemorate this Passover supper, the one that our Lord Jesus transformed into the remembrance of his perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world. So come now, Father, by your Holy Spirit and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time, that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so now, gracious God, remembering your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.